Welcome to Inside Sponsorship, the show that provides sponsorship professionals with advice, insights and news so they can maximise their commercial programmes and achieve best practice. Rugby union was an amateur sport until the International Rugby Board declared the game open in August 1995, shortly after the completion of the 1995 World Cup. And when I was growing up, those who represented Australia or played club-based rugby all had day jobs. And I remember many being lawyers and doctors and teachers and physios because it was regularly mentioned during the commentary. So as a professional sport, rugby union is only 27 years old. And fast forward those 27 years and the International Rugby Board has been replaced by World Rugby, an international federation comprising more than 500 million fans and 10 million players within 128 national member federations affiliated through six regional associations. The driving force behind the sport's significant growth has been World Rugby's portfolio of major events, from the flagship men's and women's rugby world cups and under-20 championship to the excitement of the men's and women's rugby world cup sevens and HSBC World Rugby Sevens series, which are instrumental in attracting new fans. Plus, rugby union is now an Olympic Games sport when it returned to the Olympic Games program at Rio 2016 with rugby sevens. And of course, rugby sevens is also a Commonwealth Games sport. In Australia, Rugby Australia is the sport's national governing body and is a member of World Rugby, Oceana Rugby and Sansa. Rugby Australia essentially arranges its commercial program around three key pillars. The classic 15-a-side teams for both men and women, the newer sevens teams for both men and women, and Classic Wallabies, a program for past players. Hi, I'm Daniel Oyston, host of Inside Sponsorship, and you're listening to episode 111, brought to you by Core Software. It's great to have you listening in to another show, and I hope all is well wherever you are in the world. And as usual, it's shout-out time, and this episode I have two. The first, Chris Ball connected with me on LinkedIn and let me know that he enjoys the show. Chris is the Crankworks Cairns Sponsorship and Exhibition Manager, where he works to implement and coordinate partnerships for Crankworks Global Partners. And funnily enough, attending Crankworks, preferably in Whistler, is one of my bucket list items. So it was great to hear from you, Chris, and I hope Crankworks Cairns is a huge success. Also, Ish Tanieri made contact on LinkedIn. Ish is a sports agent and only recently discovered the show. So welcome, Ish. And she told me she is finding it very helpful and an amazing little outcome because Ish works with Ryan Nicewender, who won gold at the Tokyo Paralympics in wheelchair basketball for the USA. And Ryan is a visa-sponsored athlete. And I'm going to have Ryan on the next episode. Ryan's a great speaker doing some amazing things. And I think you are all going to really, really enjoy that episode. On that note, if you have any great ideas for topics or guests for the show, then don't be shy. Let me know your thoughts and I'll see what I can make happen. And of course, if you'd like a shout out, just like Chris and Ish, then I'd totally love to hear from you. Just connect with me on LinkedIn. In Australia, Rugby Australia is the sport's national governing body and they have a huge calendar of events coming up over the next 10 years or so as they host both the men's and women's World Cups and participate in multiple Olympics and Commonwealth Games and, of course, a British and Irish Lions Tour, which only comes to Australia every 12 years. And that's why I thought it would be great to hear from James Durbin, Chief Commercial Officer at Rugby Australia. James has had a really interesting career, including being the Commercial Director at London Irish Rugby Club and the CEO of both P1 Powerboats and Madison Sports Group. Plus, he has worked on the agency and consultancy side of the fence as well. 
Now, here's James to take us inside Rugby Australia's commercial program. James, welcome to the show. We always start with a few icebreaker questions, just to have a little bit of fun. We've got some serious stuff to get into, but just have a little bit of fun and also a way for people to get to know you just a little bit. Now, you've worked across roles in professional rugby, cycling and power boats. If there's an emergency and you're called up to fill in for one of those sports, which do you think you're going to perform best at? It would have to be a pretty serious emergency for them to call me up and play any of those three sports, if I'm honest with you. I've spent a, a career or a lifetime in sport, 20-odd years, but um, I do it for the passion of sport and watching it, and I enjoy participating, but certainly not at an elite level. And the one thing I guess I've been really lucky with in being involved in sport for this long is I've got a, an appreciation of how great the professionals are and how much better they are than the average person in the street who thinks they're pretty good at sport. So I have a, a very clear appreciation that I would be terrible at any three of them. Um, but if I had to fill into one of them, I'm going to pick cycling because as the Brits are terrific at any sport sitting down, I'm going to have a better chance than uh, having any contact in rugby or uh, throwing myself out of the boat in power boating. So I'm going to go with cycling. Your next icebreaker question, I always love asking this one. You just spoke about how you have a long association with sport and you've always enjoyed watching it. What's your earliest sporting memory? My earliest sporting memory would be sitting on the hill at the SCG watching Viv Richards and Clive Lloyd uh, tear Australia apart in the test match. Um, So I'm going to guess this would have been early 80s, uh, 84 probably, somewhere around there. Um, and it absolutely suckered me into live sport and uh, and particularly cricket back in those days. It was pretty rowdy on the hill. So as a, not to give too much of my age away here, but as a sort of a, an eight, nine year old kid watching that on the hill was, uh, I'm not sure what the policy was from my parents taking me there, but it was uh, a fantastic experience. And then I guess considering my role now, the other memory I have, my, my father was big into rugby and he used to take me to, Concord uh, to watch the Waratahs and also took me to a Rugby World Cup game back there in 1987, that would have been. Um, So they're probably the two early memories of sport I have. uh, Not playing, as I mentioned earlier, more the watching. Yeah, those memories are are great. I have a similar one around cricket. I remember going to the MCG with my parents and the Windies were playing Australia as well. And the reason I remember the day was a bird pooed on my brother's shoulder and I still tease him about it to this day and he absolutely hates it. But those memories on grass hills at sporting stadiums in Australia are some fantastic memories. I remember when they, they filled that grass hill at the SCG with plastic seats in the next event. Can't remember what it was, but I remember seeing a sign there that said Jack and Jill ran up the plastic seats, which which gave, a, gave me a little bit of a giggle. So look, James, let's get into the serious stuff. It's always fun to ask those icebreaker questions and, and get us going, but let's move into the serious stuff. In your portfolio of teams at the Australian Rugby Union, you have a men's team, the Wallabies. You have a women's team, the Wallaroos. Then you have sevens teams for both men's and women's. And then also the classic Wallabies, who are the alumni of all Wallabies and Wallaroos that have retired from the game. Sounds big. It sounds complex. How is the sponsorship portfolio essentially broken up across those teams? Is it a case of you looking and, and managing major sponsors that sit across all of those and then there's some specific sponsors supplementing them or do you run them essentially as, as separate portfolios? 
it is a pretty complicated landscape there, and and I, I don't think you ever get to an ideal world within that commercial space. Um, you've got to be flexible. But what we are trying to do and and trying to simplify those offerings for our partners to come on board is to create three major pillars. So in the game of rugby, we're looking at the 15s pillar and we're looking at a sevens pillar, and then you've got the community and club side of things. And with all of our different properties, they all seem to fit into those pillars pretty well. And in terms of what our brands are trying to get in terms of the partnerships, that seems to fit quite nicely, whether it be geographically based, whether it be the values of the game, uh, the experience in venue, the broadcast rights, et cetera, seems to fit quite nicely within those three pillars. Um, and so that's our focus. And then when we go to those brands within the pillar, we do a an all of rugby approach. So we try and avoid saying, well, you, you're just partnering with the Wallabies. If someone wants to come into the 15s game, then we get them to try and cover across both the Wallabies and the Wallaroos. If they come into the sevens game, it's the men's and the women's and the same through um, community programs and, and the club game. So they're the three, I guess, strategic pillars that we focus on. Um, but as, as I said at the start, you rarely get this perfect sort of utopian uh, structure where everything is perfectly delineated between the three pillars. You mentioned that there is never really going to be that perfect utopian structure. So what do you sort of see as the, the, the positives and, and some of the challenges in structuring it under those three pillars? I think one of the, the big positives, and I, I, I mentioned all of rugby approach within the pillar, and so that's really saying we need investment in both the women's and the men's game at the same time um, is one of the big positives in, in looking at those pillars. So instead of saying, I'm, I'm going to just support rugby generally and you pick and choose your, your rights, if I'm saying I'm supporting the 15s game and it's across both men's and women's and all varieties of the game, it helps the, um, the lesser funded uh, version of, of the 15s game. So from a 15s game perspective, the Wallabies is the, the bigger revenue driver. Um, but if we can push any Wallabies partner into the Wallaroos program, that's a really positive thing for the Wallaroos to elevate their levels and, and, uh, and, and, and income. In the sevens, uh, the same thing. The women's are the big driver in terms of the revenue and the, and the media that surrounds them. And, that then drives the, the men's sevens game. So uh, I think that's one of the, the real benefits. Um, the other one, which is a, it's a benefit, but it also can be viewed as a bit of a negative or it's a bit of a challenge in delivering, is the exclusivity. So if we say that you're, you're going to be an exclusive partner within your brand category or industry for the 15s game, we can then resell that effectively for the sevens. And that's a good separation of our rights so that we can go to two competing partners and give them some exclusivity within rugby. But the downside of that is then the channels to deliver that become um, quite segmented. So if, if we had two banks, for example, um, to pick on Commonwealth Bank and the NAB, um, they want to have their exclusive rights. But if we have a single channel for rugby, uh, rugby.com.au to pick on a digital website channel, we then have to really separate those sites out so that we have Commonwealth Bank branding on one and NAB branding on the other. And the same thing when we're doing community programs, when we're touching 
the 15s game, the sevens game and the club game. Um, when you have those programs that cut across the pillars to maintain the exclusivity is, is quite challenging. Um, and so then it comes to the sort of obvious answer, I guess, which is where these commercial partnerships and sponsorships need to be going and continue to, to push is to become really flexible. And, and that's the, the honest answer, I think, is as much as you want to create these perfect structures, you've got to be flexible and you've got to work around uh, what your partner wants. And because if you have a, an absolute cookie cutter or not a cookie cutter, but a very structured approach that has no flexibility, then um, you're not necessarily going to deliver the best value for, for your partner. 100% agree. You've spoken about the three pillars, the 15s, the 7s, but then also the classic wallabies. And the classic wallabies is a, is a really interesting concept because you don't actually see it a lot. But once I did, I thought, well, it's such an obvious opportunity on a lot of fronts and not just the sponsorship element. For the classic wallabies, a lot of the partners listed there on the website are charitable or, or not-for-profit organisations. And of course, that makes sense. But I feel like the classic wallabies is is really quite marketable, especially in terms of, for want of a better phrase, the, the nostalgia among older people who would typically sit in sort of corporate management positions within brands. What are your thoughts on that front? It's a difficult one, actually. If we look at the decision maker in a brand, for example, and, and that nostalgia and that sort of reliving the glory days, whichever sport it may be, looking back favorably on the 80s, you know, we're, we're both talking about sitting on the hill at the SCG or other, other venues, and, and they were the great times, and, and everything coming forward has, has gone downhill a little bit. I think that's right in terms of the feeling of it, but my view here is we can't live in the past and, and only get excited about the past. And I think the brand decision makers have that same mindset. They'll have passion and they'll love and the emotion around the nostalgia. The classic Wallabies, for example, is terrific and it's fantastic and can do a lot for the game. But really what we need to be doing with our partners is creating the next next generation of heroes. And the 10-year-old, 12-year-old boy or girl sitting at home watching on TV or coming out to watch a rugby game they don't know who John Eales is or, or, or George Gregan or Morgan Turinui. They want to know who the current heroes are. They want to see you know, the Michael Hoopers run out, the Shani Williams run out. And, and that's what we need to focus on is building that next generation of hero. And, and then they, when their time is done, they can move into the classic Wallabies and Wallaroos and, uh, and the decision makers can have their emotional connection to them. But I don't think it's where we should be pushing the brands to invest their money in the same way that they would invest it in the uh, current heroes uh, of the game. I love that answer, that that framing of the next generation of heroes and creating aspirational outcomes for not just the, the, the brands to help the target market grow into to be you know the next generation of heroes. I really love that answer. Australian rugby, James, primarily operates in a very saturated market. How do you go about differentiating or positioning yourselves to brands against all the other properties in that market? One of the focuses of coming into Rugby Australia just in the last six months is a focus around globalising our assets, our commercial assets and our commercial program. And I think that is one of the key elements that sets rugby apart within this country 
it, it is a hugely saturated market across just the football codes, but then you can add a whole lot of other sporting disciplines as well. And it's, it's tough to break through, but where we have a real opportunity within rugby is we have 6 million avid rugby fans here in Australia. And we obviously want to dig a deep well with them and have a really close connection to them. But where we have a huge opportunity is there's 870 million rugby fans around the world. And the Wallabies, Wallaroos and Sevens brands outside our borders are hugely well respected and, and very well followed. And, and that's the opportunity for us. We've, we've also got this really aspirational sport. So it's quite rare to have a, uh, a professional sport such as rugby, which is played in these big tournaments um, in Australia but then also outside of Australia. So we've got the Rugby World Cup where the world's attention comes around um, our team and the whole country can get behind that. But then the other aspirational um, events that we get to participate in, the Commonwealth Games, the Olympic Games. You know, if I'm uh, uh, trying to drive our participation and I go to a, uh, a school of 12-year-old you know, girls and say to them, look, what, what sport do you want to play? Because in 10 years' time, you'll be 22 years of age. We're going to have a home Olympics up in Brisbane and you can be playing rugby there and represent the country to win a gold medal in front of your home crowd. That's a fantastic story to, to tell the 12 year olds in that classroom. But we can also say, if you make the team three years earlier, you're going to be hosting a rugby world cup in Australia in 2029 and you can go out and beat the best, best in the world in, in the same sport. And each year in year out, you're going to be playing some great, great, games of rugby domestically as well. So it's that globalisation and the aspiration into the Olympics and Rugby World Cups that uh, I think really does set us apart. And the opportunity in terms of market size of the 25 million in Australia it is sort of dwarfed by the how many billion in the world that we can potentially market the game to. And, and that's the opportunity that we have. And, and that's what my focus is at the moment as well. So some interesting points that you make there, aspirational events, strong domestic audience, plus a strong international audience, Olympic and, and Commonwealth Games pathways. You've also got global sevens tours that are happening. They're all strong things for brands to look at. So generally speaking, what sort of objectives or outcomes would you say that Rugby Australia is is well positioned to help brands achieve through sponsorship? Even though it is a very saturated market here in Australia, it's very seasonal as well, and, and sports generally follow those seasons. But we have a fortunate position between, particularly if you look at just sevens and fifteens, we cover both sides of the season. So we are a truly 12-month-of-the-year um, um, opportunity and to, to partner with in, in an all-of-rugby um, um, scenario. And, and so I think that's quite a unique positioning for a brand to have constant association for a 12-month period. That sort of footprint is, is unusual in sport. And there's some long seasons out there, but, um, um, but I don't think many go for, for 12 months of the year. And again, I guess just tapping back into what I was saying earlier around the global audience, we have a fantastic engagement here domestically, but that international element, which can be very, very targeted. So a lot of what we're doing at the moment um, is producing um, different activated rights in different parts of the world. So when we're touring in the Northern Tour that we have at the end of this year with the Wallabies, we're going to Scotland, Italy, Wales, Ireland uh, and France. 
And that gives us an opportunity to target potential clients, people that want to follow um, the brand of our partners and our, our rugby team in all of those different markets. We then have uh, an incredible global audience from a broadcast perspective. We can do the same thing with virtual um, branding within our matches, whether it be on the grass or LEDs, um, which we're, we've been doing a great deal of where you'll see different brands around different countries. And so that globally targeted audience is something that I think is, is um, pretty special within the world of rugby. Well, following on from that, you talk about the focus on globalising your assets. You've mentioned that a couple of times and, and, and the point there that the sport doesn't really have an off-season. There's always something happening around the sport globally. When you're talking to brands, what, what would you identify as some of your truly unique assets that you can offer partners? Not to sound like a broken record, but these, these global assets are, are really what is the unique part. You know, I think we have incredible access to our players. Um, but as a, as a unique Australian property, um, I, I don't think that that is actual, I should say it's not a unique property. I think as having spent 18 years out of the country and, and seen sport all around the world and coming back to Australia, the access that people get to the professional athletes here in Australia, I think is pretty good. And I think rugby does a, a very good job of that as well. So I don't think it's unique, but I think it's a very good aspect of, of what rugby provides. But the globalisation um, of rugby and the ability to tap into those global markets and be very targeted about that, I think is unique. Um, you know, we probably have something similar there with cricket, but cricket probably is not quite as widespread as what rugby is in terms of the following um, and in terms of the, the big aspirational events such as the Rugby World Cup and or the Olympics, which um, rugby is at, at the forefront of. So um, without sounding like a broken record, those global assets are really important to us. <laughs> well, James, I love that approach of the, the three pillars that you spoke about at the start, the 15s, the 7s and the classic in that it doesn't really, well, absolutely doesn't silo men's and women's assets. But you also mentioned that the Women's Sevens has been very popular and a real revenue driver. Talk to us about how the growth of women's rugby, and particularly the Sevens, has attracted and engaged either new sponsors or reinvigorated others. The Sevens Women's Program is, is a real shining light, I think, not just within rugby, but I think women's sport in Australia is a fully professional outfit and they've had incredible successes at the Olympics. They've just won the recent um, HSBC World Seven Series, and um, and they're now getting ready to go to the Sevens World Cup in Cape Town at the beginning of September, and they would be favourites there to come away with the World Cup. So they've been an incredible success story. It's been a big investment from Rugby Australia over many years to get to this point, and that creates heroes. And I mentioned earlier about a you know, 12-year-old girl having aspirations to play in the Olympics in 2032 they can actually see that being achieved now by, by other girls playing sevens rugby and doing it on an international stage as a fully professional player. And, and that, without a doubt, drives participation. So the biggest uh, increasing element of our community game at the moment is girls rugby in our Get Into Rugby program and the Touch Sevens program. And that is both of those programs are driven to push the development of the sevens game. 
and uh, and it's it's a really exciting moment I think for the sevens rugby program in Australia and particularly around the women's um, and with these major events starting to come to Australia around the sevens we've got the Com Games in Victoria in 26 the Olympics I've already mentioned as well as the continuation of the Sydney sevens which is coming back to Allianz Stadium um, I think the opportunity around those um, uh, those sevens programs are, are, are fantastic. And that just drives then the commercial value for them. Um, so it starts with the heroes, creating the heroes the, and the success, the participation. And then off the back of that, the, the commercial value starts flowing through. I do love that, the, the, the hero framing, because there's not many people you meet who say, I don't love a hero. So the concept of the organisation and the sport trying to create heroes is definitely something that people can get behind. James, most rights holders, in sport anyway, have an alcohol partner. A lot of places around the world, either having a drink while watching sport at home or having a drink in stadium or, or in a venue is really part of the experience. Rugby Australia doesn't, that I can see, across any of the teams. Is that a conscious choice? It's not a deliberate decision to to not partner with an alcohol brand. I think our philosophy is about finding the right partners at the right time. And the right partner is both ways. And it's not just about money either. So we will look at any partnership and any category of partnership and make sure whoever that partner is, that it's going to work for both. They need to work for rugby. We need to work for their brand. And, and the, the set of rights needs to be appropriate. We have this incredible opportunity over the next 10 years, what we're terming the golden decade of rugby, um, with all of the World Cups and Olympics, Com Games, et cetera, that I've already mentioned. And so any selection of partner that we have at the moment is not for the short term, they're for, for long-term partnerships. And so we've been very careful around this particular category in terms of who we will partner with. Um, it's a little bit more challenging in some respects because we don't have a, uh, a home ground. Um, and so if we're looking at uh, the porridge elements of a beer partnership, for example, within Stadia, it's not quite as straightforward as, as being a, an anchor tenant somewhere. Um, but I think the, uh, the, the summary of all of that is we're not deliberately um, associating ourselves without an alcohol partner. Uh, I think you probably will see that we will partner at some point, but we will partner with the right brand at the right time. And and uh, and that's important to to how we go forward across any category, um, not just in, in the world of alcohol. Let's focus the conversation a little because the overall chat has been great in setting the scene and, and building the understanding for us so far. Can you talk us through one of your newest sponsors that have come on board in terms of why they came on board and looking at what they were looking to achieve out of the sponsorship and, and what properties their sponsorship includes to help them activate and achieve that? It's not necessarily a new partner, but it's a, a renewal and a, and a shift in focus. Land Rover renewed their agreement with us uh, just in the last couple of months and it's, it's quite a shift in their rights and it's a very focused outcome for them. They are looking to partner with our elite teams, our teams in gold, if you like, um, around a leadership base. So their focus is to identify the leaders of tomorrow 
and that links back in with their brand of um, Defenders of Tomorrow, which is Defender obviously being one of their major brands within their portfolio. And so they're utilizing assets to A, identify leaders of tomorrow and then reward them and help build their leadership skills. And so how they're activating that is they're identifying through our community programs who are the real leaders, not necessarily the best rugby players out there, but who are the best young leaders, boys and girls, um, and taking them on a journey, bringing them to a game, getting them to run out with the team or just before the team runs out, standing there, singing the anthem with them um, and, and delivering the ball to the to the centre pitch um, before kickoff. And it's it's less about the the traditional branding elements. It's more about telling a story and finding the um, the leaders of tomorrow or defenders of tomorrow to use to use the appropriate term that they've coined. And I think that's a really interesting move for them. Um, it's not just out there saying, right, how are we going to sell more cars? How are we going to get our brand seen by more people? And putting a, a media value around that and saying, oh, here's the value to it. They're really focused around, about um, the future. And uh, and I guess if, if we take a sort of a cold hard view of it, it's the purchases of tomorrow and of their vehicles. So that's a really interesting uh, take and, and quite a big shift in terms of where they have been with rugby over the past few years and where the new deal has, has moved to. So James, that all happened only four months after starting in the role that you announced Land Rover had renewed their partnership as the official vehicle uh, until the end of 2024. And so it's a three-year deal and it extends the relationship, as you mentioned, but it extends it to seven seasons with Land Rover first joining the Rugby Australia family back in 2018. A little bit of a curly one for you. Do you think being new to the role when the negotiations were happening, do you think that helped in terms of resetting and refreshing the partnership? The reason I ask is that because no partnership is perfect. We've all heard horror stories of where things don't happen well, they don't go to plan, a sponsor just walks because they weren't feeling as though they were getting the return on objective or return on investment. But for want of a better phrase, anything that may have not been perfect in the past was was pretty much out of your control. So did you think that helped or or, or was there a little bit of unpacking without throwing sponsors and and previous staff under the bus? (laughs) No, I certainly won't do that. But I I think you're right in in, in your summary and that things can get a little bit stale from time to time and a, a fresh set of eyes is always valuable. And I remember sitting in the first week or two in the role and I was sitting with the marketing director at Cadbury, who's our principal partner, and we were talking about exactly this. Uh, a new set of eyes is, is good and let's, uh, an ability to refresh, reset, as the term you used, um, is a positive thing. And, and he coined the phrase as we were chatting, it's the purity of first sight. And so coming into the organisation, having a look at the deals that have been struck, whether it be Land Rover, whether it be Cadbury, whether it be any of our partners, and having that first look at it and saying, hang on, that just doesn't look look right, or we could do that better, or why are we doing it like this? And if the answer has, ever comes back, well, that's because how we did it last year, um, generally that's not going to be the right answer. And so we need to take another look at it. So that side of things, I think, coming in new and fresh has been valuable. You know, having standard rights and benefits within these packages, uh, of which Land Rover had some, 
Cadbury had some or we've even changed them this year mid, mid agreement and a few other partners have. I've sat with them and said, do you actually want these rights? And invariably, I said, no, they're just part of the package. And, and so we've taken them away, bundled them up and, and we can sell them to someone else or kept them to keep a cleaner space within, within our environment. So it definitely helps. But I think the other part, uh, maybe just to make comment on, on the, the historic nature of the relationship, I think coming in you, you also need to take responsibility, irrespective of whether you were in the hot seat or not, for for things that have happened in the past and that and they can't be ignored and and if there's some make good that needs needs to happen um or or some appreciation of what has happened such as a partner supporting you incredibly well during uh, an amazingly tough two years in sport being 2020 and 2021 those things can't be ignored coming into the organization so i've been very mindful of that of partners who have supported us uh, through thick and thin, um, and we have a couple of partners within our women's program that have absolutely done that. Build Corp comes to mind, who have been an incredible supporter of women's rugby for many, many years. And I think those, um, it's a responsibility of someone coming in you to not forget those investments that they've made over time uh, in the good and the bad times. It's great framing that that purity of first sight. I really, really do like that and it's an interesting comment about asking if people really do want those rights that have always been in the package because i've seen plenty and plenty of examples and even being on the sort of the receiving end of it when particularly things like tickets where people in the office are like oh my god who can we give these tickets away to this week they're in the they're in the package the boss is wondering to know who we're giving them to and you you're ringing your friends and your next door neighbors and their friends and just trying to get people to take the tickets because they were given to you as as part of a package i think it's a really important point to make james you just mentioned about talking to Cabri in those early days. Let's circle back to those early days because you've you've been in the role since the start of the year and obviously introducing yourself to the partners is, is an obvious task that you have to tick off on your list early on when you start a role. But how do you go about that and, and what do you focus on in the early days to to really sort of say, hi, I'm James and really help build understanding and rapport with those sponsors? I tried to identify the major concerns of any of their partners. So what I wanted to ensure that um, they all had their piece with me to say, here's my history as a brand partner of Rugby Australia. And here are all the things that I think we're as a partnership struggling with. And here's what I think is going well. And then I will look at those things that they've identified, which are concerns to them. And I'll try and find at least one that I can have a positive impact on almost immediately. And generally, that's relatively easy. Um, it's generally either a communication issue or a little bit more attention, whatever it may be. Um, but in identifying that and, and trying to rectify it or show positive intent to rectify it in the future, get you off on the right foot. Um, I think then the next step is to ensure that they feel like they are part of not necessarily the decision-making, but at least understanding of how we're going to build out our commercial strategy for the years to come and that they understand where we're going and how we're going to try and get there so that they can be part of that journey. And the journey we have as rugby over the next 10 years, as I've mentioned, is, is quite incredible. 
And so I think it's all the more important that we try and bring our partners along. And so that communication piece is absolutely paramount in, in delivering that. And I think it's more than just saying, look, come along for the journey, here's where we're going. But it's identifying key milestones, either on an annual or, or, or semi-annual basis to say to the partners, look, here's our long-term 10-year journey. But along the way, we have these key tentpole events or, or, or key milestones commercially that we want to be hitting. So let's keep coming back to those outside of the overall partnership rights and benefits, but as a group of partners to say, are we all on the right track here and are we delivering so that we all enjoy the success by the time we get to 2032, 33, 34. Um, and, and that I think is a, a good thing for the brand to hear, but it all it's also, I think, the right way to try and build a long-term relationship with these partners. James, the early wins, finding an issue, making an effort, even if they're not particularly huge things, they can actually be things in a partnership that just become super annoying for the sponsor. So showing some care and a little bit of focus goes a long way in showing what sort of person you are and how you intend to approach the role. So I really love that, just walking in and, and trying to find some early wins and, and trying to you know, fix a few things that might not have been right for, for some time. James, you've spoken about World Cups and Tours, Commonwealth Games, Olympic Games. Adding into the mix with those World Cups and, and Commonwealth and Olympic Games is the British and Irish Lions Tour, which is heading our way in 2025. And I think it only ever comes to Australia every 12 years. So it's uh, hugely anticipated. How does Rugby Australia leverage those types of huge tourism and commercial one-off events across its broader commercial landscape, particularly when a lot of what you've been speaking about has been you know, building heroes and next generations and aspirational events for people? I think the British and Irish Lions Tour can't be underestimated in terms of its scale. And, and I think the enjoyment that all of Australia will get in, in that tour, uh, having been involved in it back in 2001, it seems like a long time ago now, um, when I was involved in rugby back in Australia, but also having been in the UK for such a long time, and as the Lions tour every four years to either South Africa, New Zealand, or Australia, and, and in Australia only every 12, uh, every four years, and then in Australia every 12 years, um, the, the, the interest from there in that tour is extraordinary. And so it is such an important aspect of what we do commercially. Um, and what's really important is we take advantage of it for the long term. So we have two strategies really around these major events and, and particularly with the Lions because it's sort of the gatekeeper to our flood of major events coming to Australia uh, over the coming years. And that's to encourage people to come back and support rugby. And we've been very open um, that in the last few years, we've probably lost our way a little bit. Um, I think we've, we've stabilised the, the ship uh, and calmed the waters down. Um, and rugby is now very much on the up in terms of on field as well as commercially. Um, we've got a fantastic broadcast partner in Nine and Stan. And so things are looking very rosy from that perspective. Um, we now need to bring the trust back of, of our big audiences. And I think the Lions Tour will do that for us. And so long as we activate it properly. So building our audience back is, is absolutely key. And then bringing commercial partners on and, and particularly on looking here at global partners. 
and getting them not just to commit to the Lions, but to commit to rugby in Australia. Not Rugby Australia per se, but rugby in Australia, making a, a, a small sort of fine point there of difference in that we want, as New Zealand have done very, very well, in getting global brands to invest in rugby in New Zealand. We need global brands to invest in rugby in Australia. So it means we just don't have to keep going back to the same pool of partners domestically here in Australia within that very saturated market. So it's a fantastic opportunity for us and one that we're really looking forward to. And uh, and we think everyone will have a, a really great time. It's it's one of the best sporting events I certainly have ever been to. So looking forward to it. You use the word extraordinary in terms of the interest and excitement, and it isn't just limited to fans and brands because it reminds me of the last tour. It was a midweek game, freezing cold, like minus degrees on a Wednesday night in Canberra. I went out to the game to see the Brumbies play, and I was listening to the referees, you know, where they play the referees, uh, what they're saying to the players. And quite early on, he, he blew a penalty and he called the captain over, Peter Kimlin, um, and, and he said, uh, Peter, you and the team just need to calm down. And I distinctly remember Peter saying to the referee, because it got picked up in his microphone, he said, I'm really sorry, sir. We're all just really excited because we're playing the Lions. So I know that that excitement isn't just limited to the fans and, and the brands that are involved in the event. The, the, the touring party and the teams that they get to play, is it, it's a massive couple of uh, weeks in Australia. It is truly a once-in-a-generational sort of opportunity. You know, there's there's big, big-name wallabies for example, Tim Horan, who never got the opportunity to play against the Lions. So to have that opportunity and to get the time, it's like a home World Cup. You're just lucky enough to be in that generation to uh, to be able to play those games. So I understand his excitement. How can sponsors expect Rugby Australia to, as we look to the future, leverage some of the new trends that you're seeing? So it'd be great if you could speak about some of the, the, the new trends that you're seeing and, and maybe pursuing and then how sponsors can expect RA to, to leverage those trends and drive continued value in the future? Technology is such a massive part of sport now and, and it pervades all, all parts of that immersive experience. So that term immersive experience is used a lot at the moment, um, particularly around Web3 and Metaverse, etc. But it actually applies to the full live experience and at-home experience. And, and that is really driven predominantly by technology. And the one thing we don't want to do in sport, and we definitely don't want to be doing doing it in rugby, is just throwing so much data and technology at the game that you lose that inherent passion point of why we all love sport and playing and, and watching the game. So we're quite deliberate and careful about how we integrate technology into the game. But at the same time, we're, we try and be very innovative and and want to push the boundaries a little bit. So... You may have seen um, this year we we formed a partnership with Sportable, uh, a company who has put a chip inside the Gilbert Rugby Ball, and that is providing us data that we've never had access, access to before. And you integrate that data around the ball, so speed of pass, distance of kicks, where the ball is throughout the game, with the traditional insights that you get from uh, the optostats or you know the statistician at the game and you get some really fascinating insights into the game and it, along with the incredible camera angles you get now when you're sitting at home watching on tv and that data 
really gives you that immersive experience. So we can talk about um, what it's actually like to be in a mall in a game of rugby or the importance of the line out or why we like seeing James O'Connor when he's got a penalty kick, kick right as close as he possibly can to the try line. And if it goes beyond the try line, that's not much of an issue. We'd much prefer him to try and get as close as he possibly can because the data we're getting from the ball mixed with the insights we're getting from the stats show that we're much more likely to score a try the closer he can get to that, that flag post. So I think the integration of the technology, massively important to improve the experience of everyone, but you've got to be really careful that you're not just chucking data at people and, and ruining the, the actual passion linked to the game that they're watching it in the first place for. I think that's a good point because there is a plethora of data and analytics available. And I think we are still really in a period where we're all thinking, how do we actually integrate this to provide more value to the people that are consuming our sport? Because ultimately that makes them more engaged and and so that attracts more brands and, and more partners. James, while the subject of this next question isn't strictly around sponsorship, we do, however, often talk about the importance of finding partners that fit with our values, and you've reiterated that throughout this chat today. The values of Australian Rugby Union as an organisation were on show a few weeks ago when the Wallabies, the men's team, played England in Brisbane in the second game of three-game test series. And while they were wearing a First Nations jersey, they also sung the national anthem in the Yagumbe language, which is the language of the traditional custodians of the land on which they were playing that night. How important is that for an organisation to, to really live those values in, in such a public way? Oh, I think it's absolutely integral to the, to the, to the brand. And, and in our case, that brand is rugby. And uh, I think we, we need to be true to those, uh, those values. And it's not something that I've mentioned when you've asked me what, what sets rugby apart, but I think living our values and living them sometimes in the face of commercialization is actually a really um, positive thing for the sport and the respect we have for the officials, the respect we have um, in terms of the original custodians of the land, all of that level of respect um, is one of the key value drivers within rugby. And that's not just within Australia, that's on a global footing. And, and again, to drag it back into that global discussion, um, those values are truly global. And, and it, what, it is part of what makes the game of rugby a very unique, uh, a very unique sport. So, absolutely critical. I, I don't think I can I can speak strongly enough about the importance of showing and sharing those values of our sport, um, whatever level the person is participating or playing at um, or watching the game. That answer is a great segue into my next question because we know that brands are often looking for more than just assets and activations in their sponsorship, more than just the pure return on objective or return on investment. There is an ever-increasing focus on the corporate social responsibility element. What's the appetite like with your sponsors on that front? And it'd be great if you could give some examples of sponsors that are working with Rugby Australia on social or, or, or charitable programs as part of their overall more commercially focused partnership. Yeah, it, it is a hugely important element of any of the partnerships we do um, at the moment. And I guess one of the first things we needed to look at is we've got to practice what we're preaching here as well, to use an old adage. So it, it wasn't enough for us to go to our partners and say, okay, well, what, 
what terrific charitable or, or sustainable efforts are you making around the partnership and as a business and how can we support those? But we also needed to get our house in order. So we're very focused around um, our sustainability as an organisation. World Rugby has come out with targets for all of the national unions to hit um, with certain years to, to achieve those in. We're, we're looking to improve on those and we're trying to do our bit as well in the sustainability side of things as well as from a, a charitable element as well. Um, but we then work with, I would say, every single one of our partners we will work closely with around either a charitable cause and or um, their sustainability efforts um, to ensure that um, we are leaving um, legacy in as many industries as we can in and around rugby in Australia. So. Um, without sort of picking one out in particular, I, I would say it's fair to say that we are working with all of our partners in that space. And, and I guess the example I gave earlier around Land Rover, um, which is not specifically around charitable or, or sustainability causes, but it's about looking at the youth of today and how can we improve leadership. And, and so those sort of programs um, run right throughout and are a common thread in, in all of our partnerships. James, fantastic chat. I really enjoyed it and the insights that you gave, but ultimately how you frame the amazing focus uh, that Rugby Australia has over the next sort of 10 to 15 years. If people want to connect with you and keep the conversation going or find out more about Rugby Australia and its partners, what can they do? Where can they go? If they want to connect with me and keep chatting, LinkedIn is probably the best option. Um, I'm there and will always answer anything that, uh, that comes through to me. Um, uh, otherwise, I'm very happy to see you sitting in the seat at a Wallabies or Wallaroos or Sevens game in Australia. Anytime in the next 12 months, I'll be there. Absolute legend. James Durbin, Chief Commercial Officer, thank you so much for coming on the show and taking us inside sponsorship at Rugby Australia. Terrific, Daniel. Thank you very much. Lots of great nuggets and advice in that chat with James there. And there are two things that really stuck out for me. The first being the use of the word and the framing hero. It's a word that instantly has meaning for fans and, and even young aspirational athletes. And by and large, hero stories are stories everybody loves. So I think it is a great focus. And the second was James's great approach to sponsors when he first arrived and the way he looked for quick wins to build rapport and trust with Rugby Australia's existing partners. And the comment of the first look purity as well and being mindful of that as a way to not just maintain the status quo with the existing partnerships. If you'd like to connect with James on LinkedIn, simply search for James Durbin. That's D-U-R-B-I-N. And of course, you can learn more about Rugby Australia. Simply visit rugby.com.au. Finally, if you'd like a shout out or just want to connect with me and say hi, then I'd totally love to hear from you. I do really get a kick out of it. So please make the effort. Connect with me on LinkedIn. Just search for Daniel Oyston. That's O-Y-S-T-O-N. And that's a wrap for episode 111. Until next time, I'm Daniel Oyston. Thanks for listening to Inside Sponsorship. Thanks for listening to the show. For more episodes and to subscribe to the show, search for Inside Sponsorship on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever it is you listen to your podcasts. Also, for more free industry-specific resources, including blogs, ebooks, white papers, and our Insights newsletter, head to coresoftware.com. Finally, be sure to follow Core Software on Twitter and LinkedIn.